just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. No more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station. Let him scared. Laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. All right, we are back. You know, one nice thing, and, and, and there are some nice things about current developments is the fact that we have an opportunity to sit back and contemplate, I know it sounds trite to say, how, how wonderful life can be. I've been out in my backyard looking up at green hills, blue sky, white clouds, birds flitting around, and you just, you know, it's lovely. It's sort of a cliche that we sometimes don't take the time to smell the roses. And uh, what do you know? Fate has just served us a big extra helping of time. Let us put it to good use. Now, we've not yet finished our discussion here of, you know, best scenario, worst scenario. We need to flesh that out a little bit. Many people on the optimistic side are noting that the weather may help us here. Some respiratory viruses decline in summer from the combination of higher temperatures and people not being huddled together so much. So it is possible that Northern Hemisphere nations will enjoy a summer break before a probable second wave in the fall. That is what happened during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. It hit in the spring of 19, went away, but returned in the fall. And it was actually, it made three passes through the world. And it was the second, the one that took place in the fall, that was the worst. And in fact, my understanding is the third wave of that pandemic was somewhere between you know, the first one and the second one, intermediate. So yeah, I mean, the first time it passed through the world, it was the least bad. And countering this optimistic view a bit, the World Health Organization's Assistant Director General, Bruce Alward, is an authority on this and has been speaking out. He notes that uh, it's probably undue optimism to hope that this is all going to get better with warmer weather, noting that it was ravaging Singapore, which you know, was, was countered quite effectively with the Singaporeans. But Singapore's right on the equator. It's hot there. It's always hot there. Also, it is working its way through Australia, which has just transitioned from summer into early fall. I think I'll have more to quote from Mr. Alward shortly, but back to the Nicholas Kristof article. It quotes Dr. Charles Probe of Stanford as saying that several countries have shown that decisive action can turn the tide on COVID-19, at least for a time. Notes that China, astonishingly, last week reported on one day not a single new case of domestic transmission. Noting that while China is still vulnerable to that second wave, it has apparently shown that the virus can be squelched. This optimistic side of it notes that the West isn't going to copy the coercive tactics of China. I have to pause right there and note in the idea that, you know, China has shown that the the virus uh, can be squelched and, and just note that yeah, well, in America, that ship has sailed. They use techniques which we have now lost the opportunity to employ. 
more on that later. But they did say also that Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, and Hong Kong also demonstrated that at least temporarily the virus can be controlled. Singapore responded with the standard epidemiological toolkit, vigilance and rapid response, telling vigilance and rapid response. Also testing, isolating the sick, tracing contacts, quarantining those exposed, and ensuring social distancing while providing reliable information. What a concept. They, it should be noted, did not shut down their entire country, and they managed to keep schools open throughout. I think this is making the Singaporeans a bit cocky. The article quoted Christopher Willis, a physician from Singapore, as saying, Stay calm. For most people, it's like the common cold. They also quoted Dr. Tara Smith, epidemiologist at Kent State, saying, I'm not pessimistic. I think this can work. She thinks it will take eight weeks of social distancing to have a chance to slow the virus, and success will depend on people changing their behaviors and on hospitals not being overrun. Yeah, well, yeah, that may not be a ship that's sailed, but it looks as though they're pulling up anchor in that area. And although we're trying to look at the future at this point, we do have to, you know, back up to present time right now. And note that if you graph out the trending of the last whatever time frame you want to pick, week, couple weeks, month, Well, I I guess we can't go to month because today in California anyway represents our 14th day since we hit 100 patients. The United States is now on day 21. In Italy, it would be day 32. At this point, it appears that America stands poised to become the number two nation in cases, leapfrogging ahead of Italy. And the way it's going, we're going to become the number one nation in the world. My guess would be by April 3rd. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm looking at the numbers right now and note that one week ago in America, we had 8,800 cases. We now have 64,600. We have thus doubled three times in seven days. And I'm not a mathematician, but if we've gone up eightfold over eight days, that'd be a doubling time of every two days. We're ahead of that. When Italy had about 9,000 cases, which was on their day 16, it took them 15 days to double three times. This tends to put me in the, I guess you'd say, somewhat more pessimistic camp at this point. The Christoph article reached the point after citing various optimistic sources and said, uh, that's the best case, and it's plausible. If you want to feel upbeat, stop reading here. Because here's what comes next. Neil Ferguson, British epidemiologist regarded as one of the best disease modelers in the world, produced a sophisticated model with the worst-case scenario of 2.2 million deaths in the U.S. When he was asked by Christoph for his best-case scenario, he said 1.1 million deaths. We'd have to guess that he's probably not revising that back to be a little more optimistic, being that two days after he reported that, he developed a cough and tested positive for coronavirus. It's curious to note that America and South Korea reported their first COVID-19 cases on the same day. But South Korea took the epidemic seriously. They promptly created an effective test. They used it widely. And they'd seen cases go down by more than 90% from its peak. By contrast, in the United States, Donald Trump repeatedly dismissed the coronavirus, saying it was, quote, totally under control, unquote, and, quote, will disappear, unquote, and insisting that he wasn't concerned at all. At present, the U.S. has still done a bit more than 10% as many test cases per capita as Canada, Austria, and Denmark. 
The piece also quotes MITRE, a nonprofit that does work on health care, calculating that the coronavirus cases are doubling more quickly in the United States than in any other country it examined, including Italy and Iran. With the latest numbers, that looks to be the case. So where are we going to finally wind up in this? Nobody knows. Let us stress that. Christoph goes back to quoting Larry Brilliant as saying that he hopes the virus will mutate and die out. But he does warn the coronavirus may cause global disruption on a scale we have not seen from any epidemic in more than 100 years. And in talking about developments in South Korea and that piece with Stephen Levy for Wired, Brilliant said the South Korean model is one we could have followed. Unfortunately, it required doing the proportionate number of tests that they did. And they did well over a quarter of a million tests. By the time South Korea had done 200,000 tests, we had probably done less than 1,000. So let's talk about testing. Singapore, Taiwan, China got a really big scare back in 2003 when SARS hit. They decided they better be ready for the next one. And relatively speaking, they were. Conversely, here in the United States, we took things less seriously. And I have to confess spending most of the last three decades treating patients, generally in an urgent care situation, I somehow didn't really fully grasp the import of what was outlined in the hot zone. Now, if you two have not read it, I, I think it, it's, it's, it's going to be good pandemic reading. The book tells the story of how Ebola, which has two types, and a related very nasty virus called the Marburg virus, showed up on the world stage in the late 1980s. These are very bad actors. The death rate for Marburg is about 30%. The death rate for the Sudan strain of Ebola is 50%. The death rate for the Zaire strain of Ebola is 90%. If a respiratory version, if the Zaire Ebola strain was currently the respiratory virus loose in the world, it would be the apocalypse. Fearful that it would ever get loose and find its way to America, well, that's why they developed the vaccine as a just-in-case. Sorry, I'm taking my time here. You may want to keep the volume down if you don't want the spoiler here. Which is as follows. Ebola got to America. In fact, an outbreak was detected within 20 miles of our nation's capital. But... Lucky for humanity, it turned out that this strain of Ebola, now called Ebola Reston after Reston, Virginia, was only fatal to monkeys. But in the hot zone, they detailed the fact that there seemed to be no doubt from some of the workers at Fort Detrick, Maryland, where they study nasty bugs. When the people at Fort Detrick realized they had genuine Ebola on their hands, they just about peed their pants particularly the two researchers that were taking a look at some of the cells that showed great destruction. Now, it turned out the destruction was from the Ebola virus, but they were assuming at first, oh, this might have been a bacterial contamination. One ubiquitous bacteria, which is, remember from bacteriology, one of the toughest bacterias out there that's responsible for a lot of this contamination is called Pseudomonas. When Pseudomonas is at work, it generally produces some compounds that give it a distinct aroma book describes how at one point the researchers assuming that there'd been some bacterial contamination um, uncapped the vials to take a whiff. They also realized that if they detailed that episode to their superiors, 
They were going to spend 30 days in lockdown inside the biohazards facility where they are treated by robots and people in spacesuits. Anyway, I, I did not pay enough attention to the fact that, you know, Ebola really did get here because everybody figured no harm, no foul, it only kills monkeys. But again, the researchers were quite sure that after doing testing on this, that it could be transmitted through the air. When they were deciding what to do with this bunch of monkeys, the army at Fort Detrick realized, well, we don't have a legal mandate to, uh, to take care of this when it comes to human disease. That's the business of the CDC. And they realized there was going to be a brewing turf war. The army felt they had the capability to go into this facility and eliminate and dispose of properly all of the sick animals. But technically speaking, that really was the CDC's job. Well, depending on how, you know, lawyers were going to interpret it. They decided to go ahead with an approach involving, we can get the lawyers to say what we need to later. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Let's fix this thing. But they did have to put the obligatory call to the CDC through, at which point there was a big powwow between the monkey mucks, immediately complicated by the fact that one of the workers with the monkeys took sick. Now, they were fearing that he was sick with Ebola, but the head of the CDC said, let's admit him to the local hospital. The army took the viewpoint of, you can't do that. But as it happened, Dr. McCormick had been in Sudan when they had an outbreak of Ebola and spent several days in a hut with people stricken with the disease. And wouldn't you know it, in the course of drawing blood from them, he poked himself. Since he lived to tell the tale, he concluded that Ebola is not as transmissible as some fear. So the deal they cut was the CDC will take care of the potential human victims, the army will handle the monkeys. Which, you know, if you've ever had any contact with the government bureaucracy, that has to sound about right. Anyway, you could turn the volume back up now. It's a good read. I recommend it. And it certainly caught the attention of the authorities in Washington. And so it was. In the new millennium, when there was an outbreak in China, we took it fairly seriously. It's a matter of great controversy right now to what degree Donald Trump degraded our ability to respond to epidemics. And we'll talk about that sooner or later, maybe not today. It does seem pretty clear that John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor, let go the guy whose job it was at the NSC to monitor epidemics. Because after all, if you're concerned about national security, epidemics is one way things can go bad in your country. But although this is still somewhat confusing, there clearly was an exercise about a year ago called Crimson Containment, tried to do an assessment of how ready the United States would be if an epidemic did arrive on our shores. Their conclusion was that things would not go well. We would not be ready for it. Our responses would be disjointed, and we had to do better. At least I'm assuming that was the conclusion, that we had to do better. Apparently, they've never actually published the full summary of how things went in Crimson Containment, as that operation predicted. A lot of friends have written me or called me to ask, you know, was this thing really something that just nobody could have seen happening? Donald Trump has said exactly that, but guess what? He's lying. Although I should pause when I say that to note that if you say something that's factually incorrect, but have somehow convinced yourself that it's true, is that lying? We're going to go, I think, with yes. But over the years treating patients, I have said and and told friends of late who, who asked about this, that anyone who knows anything about medicine, anything who knows anything about epidemiology at all, knew with certainty this was coming. To quote from Larry Brilliant, 
The whole epidemiologic community has been warning everybody for the past 10 or 15 years that it wasn't a question of whether we were going to have a pandemic like this. It was simply when. It's really hard to get people to listen. I mean, Trump pushed out the admiral on the National Security Council, was the only person at that level who's responsible for pandemic defenses, and with him went his entire downline of employees and staff and relationships. And then Trump removed the early warning funding for countries around the world. When he was asked by Stephen Levy about the sequestering we're doing here in the Bay Area, he said, yes, this is good advice. But did we get good advice from the president for the last 12 weeks? No. All we got were lies, saying it's fake, by saying it's a democratic hoax. There are still people today who believe that to their detriment. Speaking as a public health person, this is the most irresponsible act of an elected official that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. But what you're hearing now to self-isolate, close schools, cancel events is right. Is it going to protect us completely? Is it going to make the world safe forever? No. It's a great thing because we want to spread out disease over time. And let's swing back a bit into the optimistic here. We need to. A study just was printed up today from a firm called WalletHub. It's giving California high marks for the several virus-fighting efforts here. Among the top-ranked states per WalletHub were California, followed by Rhode Island, Maryland, New Hampshire, and New Jersey. The five lowest-ranked states were Arkansas, Idaho, Tennessee, Nevada, and Mississippi. Now, we should remind people that we're recording this program in Alameda County at the moment, one of the Bay Area counties which was ahead of the curve in the sheltering in place, at the behest of our local county health officials, not Sacramento, not Washington. Gavin Newsom has subsequently put many of the same rules in place throughout the state of California. And not a moment too soon, experts note that Bay Area hospitals already are nearly full. And wouldn't you know it, a tech geek on his own has published a study of how the Bay Area is flattening its curve. I'm not going to go through the whole piece, but I would excerpt this written a few days ago. The Bay Area is now at 786 cases and 13 deaths, while New York has 15,100 and 114 deaths. And those numbers are a couple days old. What we have from today is that California as a whole, not just the Bay Area, but as a whole, still only has 52 deaths. Whereas in New York, they're now at 30,800 cases and 285 deaths. Now, New York is more densely populated than California is, but it does appear that um, what we're doing here is showing great benefit. Now, one curious aspect about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it appears that people are most likely to get it from family members. Therefore, there are a lot of suggestions that when you're stuck at home with your family, make sure you use different bathrooms and try and stay in separate rooms which is great advice unless you got three people living in a two-bedroom, one-bath house, like Edward McMillan. But still, even if you give it to your roommate as you're both sequestered together, it's not as bad as coughing on somebody on the subway. Not according to my roommate. Now, we're still trying to gather a lot of key information about, well, so many key facts in this. How long does it take to develop it when you've gotten it? Article by Lisa Krieger in the East Bay Times has this little bit of confusion among so many other bits of confusion. Her piece notes that the time between cases in a chain of transmission is on average four days, according to a team of scientists from the University of Texas and France, China, and Hong Kong. 
followed by scientists still believe the incubation period between infection and eradication is 2 to 14 days. Symptoms appear on average 5 days after infection. They start mild, then worsen. Now, I've read that that 2 to 14 days generally averages out to about 5 days to get symptomatic. And yet, and yet, the chain of transmission is on the average 4 days. What does this tell us? Well, that people are passing the disease along before they develop the symptoms. And since in probably more than half the cases of people infected with this virus, they get no symptoms at all, this raises such questions as, well, how infectious are you when you're asymptomatic? Well, the guess is, I I think it's a guess, but what they're saying is that you're about half as contagious as symptomatic infections because you're not coughing and sneezing and spreading germs. In one discussion about this with a physician friend talking about people that are asymptomatic spreading it, she was like, yeah, how? Well, another researcher that I've been corresponding with noted that um, they believe that it can pass into the feces, the COVID-19 virus. And they certainly are assuming that in the course of, you know, sitting around talking to somebody, you're evidently shedding enough virus to sometimes pass it along. No, I, I mean saliva, Mr. Brill, and not the feces. No wonder your roommate's unhappy. But yeah, back to this, these numbers that we need. Uh, studies in China suggested that the asymptomatic people were responsible for about two-thirds of China's documented infections because they're so abundant. And a key question is here, here is how abundant? When they tested everybody on board the cruise ship to find that out of 3,000 some odd passengers, 600 tested positive for COVID-19. But I think the actual number was 328 were asymptomatic, whereas 306 had symptoms, implying that only half the people that have the virus get sick. But I'm also seeing studies right now suggesting the number is a much smaller fraction. And I really do need more exact data on this, but uh, the piece by Lisa Krieger notes that when they did the lockdown in China on January 23rd, people with mild or no symptoms were described as the main drivers behind its spread. They said that six of every seven infections, 86%, were undetected in China before January strict travel restrictions, according to the team, a team at Columbia University. They developed a mathematical model that simulated the dynamics of infection among 375 Chinese cities to estimate the contagiousness and proportion of undocumented infections during the weeks before and after the shutdown. Another friend sent a, uh, a verbal report of a study done at the University of Chicago of their epidemiologists where they said they thought that the percentage of people who are actually sick that have the virus was like 12.5%. I'm just unclear on this study from China whether they're assuming that that 86% of people described as undetected means people that were asymptomatic, which is possible because these days, especially here in America, we're only testing people who are sick. Now, let's just say instead of it being a one-to-one ratio, it's a one-to-eight ratio. That would mean that these fatality rate numbers of coronavirus are vastly inflated. A lot of people think that's the case and they're feeling pretty good about it, but I don't think they should. The key thing here is what the absolute number does to your health care facilities, whether it's one person out of two that gets sick or one person out of eight that gets sick, if the numbers are climbing so rapidly that you swamp your health care system, you're in trouble. And it looks as though we're headed for trouble. If the proportion of people who actually are sick with the virus is something like one out of eight people that 
is infected. The news that it's not as deadly as we thought is balanced off by the fact that it's evidently spreading around the world way faster than we thought. The current world total of cases is approaching the half million mark, which means that at minimum, the number of world cases has certainly got to be about a million, but could it be five million? Could we be seeing something that's, I guess you'd say, only as bad as the flu, nevertheless doubling up on what the flu does? Time will tell. And Mr. Millen tells me that as far as time goes, we've only got a couple minutes left. We've not covered anywhere near the number of things we wanted to. So what we're going to do is something we have rarely done on this program, which is to turn out a second program in the next week, most likely the next couple of days. We're very sad to report that KDVS, for the first time in its half century of operations, has gone dark during this pandemic. We're grateful that the good people up in Chico at KZFR are still doing their duty, manning their posts, or so we hope and assume. All right, so the things I talked about at the top of the show and have gone along the way we haven't gotten to, we will put in our next hour. But I did promise one bit of dark comedy was sent to me. This does provide an opportunity to point out something that is idiotic to the point of being almost funny that doesn't involve Donald Trump. Patients and staff at a hospital in Liverpool are being alerted after it emerged a surgeon who failed to self-isolate after coming back to the UK from Italy where apparently he was on a skiing trip, has tested positive for coronavirus. The surgeon was diagnosed on Monday and is the fifth person from Liverpool confirmed to be infected. There are concerns he may have now passed it on to patients he's operated on and other medical staff. Several colleagues have expressed their concerns. One claimed the consultant continued to operate on patients and mixed with colleagues for around a week after returning from Italy and believes he should have been self-isolating at that time. One concerned person said four other colleagues who had temperatures were sent home to self-isolate but were not tested. Given that this employee has been in that hospital continuing to work for a week, surely the hospital needs to take more serious approach and strong measures to ensure that the virus is not spread any further. Responding to concerns, a spokesperson for the Liverpool University Hospital's Foundation Trust said, a member of the staff has been in self-isolation since being confirmed as positive for COVID-19. We have contacted all the patients that are identified as coming into contact with the staff member and are working with Public Health England and the NHS England to inform and advise those who may have come into contact with this individual. My understanding is that he decided to take a ski trip to Italy. Italy! Despite all of the viral-related activity in Italy! After which he returned to resume his duties as a physician in a hospital! Radio Parallax is unable to confirm the rumor that Donald Trump is contemplating removing Tony Fauci and replacing him with this guy. But would that surprise you? I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and we plan to have out another session of this program in the next, let's say, three days. So everybody, stay safe, stay home as much as you can, wash your hands, and take a look at all those tasks you've been meaning to do for the past few years but never seem to get around to doing. Well, now's the time. And I love someone who's near to me. I'm a loser, and I'm not what I appear to be. Although I laugh and I act 
like a clown Beneath this mask I am wearing a frown 